Welcome to the Torah Guide, a podcast where we explore how the Hebrew Bible is all about Jesus and meditate on what it has to say to us. I'm your host, Aaron Dranoff. The Torah's author gave us his own interpretation of the Torah by placing poems at key structural moments in the narrative. Together, these poems all point to one divine human rescuer, a Jewish king, who would atone for Israel and deliver humanity from evil. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been exploring the significance of poetry in the Torah. We discussed how at every major turning point in the Torah, there is a poem, which can give us confidence that they are important to how the author is communicating his message. Since the poems share the same themes and are placed at every significant change in the story, they function as landmarks guiding us along the correct interpretation. The first poem is at the very beginning of the Torah, in Genesis 3, and it launches us into the rest of the Torah. There's a poem at the very end of Genesis, right before the story switches from the patriarchs to the people of Israel, and that's in Genesis 49. There's another one of these load-bearing poems after Israel's exodus from Egypt and before they wander in the wilderness. And that poem's in Exodus 15. And then there are two poems near the end of Israel's time in the wilderness in Numbers 24. And finally, the entire Torah is closed with two more of these load-bearing poems in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Now, there's other poetry all throughout the Torah, and it even shares all the same themes, but these poems that we just talked about deserve special attention because they are placed so carefully at structurally important moments in the Torah's design. The author repeatedly draws attention to the fact that even though these load-bearing poems describe past events, they are really about what will happen in the future. And the poets are Jacob, Balaam, and Moses. And they all use the same Hebrew phrase to introduce their poems, Becharit Hayamim. They all say that their poems are about what will happen in the last or the later days, Becharit Hayamim. And all these structurally significant poems about the future share the same imagery. God's poem at the very beginning of the Torah was a response to human evil. He promised to deal with evil by sending someone who would crush evil and be crushed in the process. He poetically explained that a descendant of the woman would crush the serpent, but that he'd be crushed in return. So do you see how this poem is interpreting a past event? What had already happened in the story is the serpent deceived the woman into disobeying God. And so in God's poem, He tells of the woman's future descendant crushing the serpent and being crushed in return. So we're having past events telling us about the future. And it's already happening in the very first poem. And we're going to continue seeing that past events telling us about the future in each of these structurally significant poems. Now, it's important to note that in God's poem, the serpent is the enemy of humanity. God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the rescuer crushing the serpent is him crushing his enemy. Now we'll later see poems recall this imagery and describe a king crushing or grabbing his enemies. Last week we focused on the second structural poem in the Torah, Jacob's poem. We noticed that Jacob's poem picked up the same imagery and filled out the serpent crusher's silhouette even more. His poem attached the same imagery to two figures from the narrative. Judah and Joseph. It specifically revealed that the Genesis 3 rescuer would be one of Judah's descendants. In his blessing, Jacob said that Judah's hand 
would be on the neck of his enemies. And they told us that this person would be like Joseph, someone who would suffer as a sacrifice, yet be unstoppably victorious. Now we'll keep this in mind and turn our attention to two more structurally significant poems in the Torah, Moses and Balaam's poems. We're going to see how these poems blend all the imagery together from Jacob's poem, Moses' poem, Balaam's poem, and God's poem, all together painting a vivid image of one human divine sacrifice. Now, Balaam, or Balaam's poem, appears before Moses' poem, but we're going to look at Moses' poem first and then come back to Balaam. Here's why. The Torah is self-described as meditation literature. In Deuteronomy 6, God tells Israel to think about the commands in the Torah all the time. And in the rest of the Tanakh, it's consistently referenced back to as literature that we should meditate on day and night. You can look at Joshua 1, 1 Kings 2, and Psalm 1, all at critical moments in the Tanakh, and they're all pointing back to the Torah as literature with the command, meditate on it day and night. One of the ways that it's designed for meditation is that later stories are patterned after earlier stories. By telling these new stories in a similar way with similar language as earlier stories, it provides us with more context for the things that happened earlier and more context for the things that happened later that are similar. So one example is the covenant that God made with Adam on page two of the Tanakh. During Adam's story, it's never explicitly stated that God made a covenant with Adam. Instead, it shows God blessing Adam and creation through him on the condition that he reflects God's image according to God's conditions, not eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then later in the Tanakh, God made a similar promise to others, including Noah, Abraham, and Israel, that were explicitly called covenants, but Adam, that wasn't called a covenant. Now, this should send us back to Adam's narrative with the understanding that it's a covenant story because the promises are similar, it's a similar pattern, but even though Adam's wasn't called a covenant, these later ones were, which tells us that Adam's actually was a covenant. So when we go back to look at the Adam story, now understanding it's a covenant story, we should look to see how this new piece of context informs the meaning. And then later in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets will often keep us on track. Uh, they'll, they'll make sure that we're actually doing this narrative patterning understanding correctly. So Hosea tells us explicitly that God made a covenant with Adam in Hosea 6-7. And the only way that Hosea can see that from scripture is realizing that the promise to Adam is a very similar thing as to what happens with Noah, Abraham, and Israel, and even King David. Okay, so Balaam and Moses' poem work in a similar way, um, meaning they communicate across the pages with each other and they each give us more context that will help us uh, better understand the other. So Balaam's poem, which is placed earlier in the Torah, has more information than we're ready for. So if you're reading through the Torah for the first time, you wouldn't be able to see its full meaning until you get to Moses' poem. So you're reading along the Torah, you get to Balaam's poem, and it's going to stand out to you, and you're not going to be super comfortable with the ideas. And then you keep reading, and you get to Moses' poem, and now you're going to go, oh, I get it. This is what Balaam was talking about earlier in the story. You're going to see how they communicate across the pages and fill in the gaps. This is why it's so important to approach the Torah as one complete work. Now, to be sure, there's a complicated history of how it was actually formed, and there's earlier source material that's been gathered together into the final work. We have later biblical authors quoting not only earlier biblical authors, but they'll quote from 
a book of poetry or, or things like that. So there's definitely earlier source material that's been gathered together into the final work of scripture, but it was gathered and assembled carefully into one complete work that we encounter as the Hebrew Bible. So we need to approach it with the understanding that its composer, the Hebrew Bible's composer, had a message to communicate. And it's the finished work that sends or communicates the message. The fact that the story doesn't always develop in a forward-moving line, but instead sometimes circularly, that shouldn't be a problem. So all that said, let's take a look at Moses' poems. So there are two poems at the end of Deuteronomy. They both focus on the imagery from Jacob's poem in Genesis. The first, in Deuteronomy 32, focuses most of all on two images, the stone or rock imagery and that of the archer. In Jacob's poem, Joseph was described as an archer whose bow never wavered, even though he himself was being shot at. And it pointed forward to the future stone of Israel, associating this stone person with Joseph. Remember that Joseph's story was in turn applied to Judah's future descendant. Here's what Jacob said about Joseph. The archers provoked him and shot at him and were hostile toward him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That's Genesis 49, 23-24. But then in the poem in Deuteronomy 32, it takes great lengths to emphasize that there is only one rock of Israel, God himself. It says, For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. It emphasizes that the rock of Israel is God himself throughout the poem. Now also here in Deuteronomy 32, God himself is depicted as a warrior who specifically uses arrows, so an archer. So this presents us with an incredible description of the Joseph-like ruler from the tribe of Judah. The same imagery used to describe the serpent crusher and Judah's descendant is now, in Deuteronomy 32, used about God himself. And more than just being used to describe God, it's specifically describing God in the poems about the human deliverer. God is the serpent crusher. But let's take a second to see if this understanding even makes sense given the Torah's plot. The reason God promised a future descendant of the woman to crush the serpent was that Adam listened to the serpent and broke his covenant with God. The effects of human evil spread, and then Genesis 8 explained that all humans are evil from their youth. According to Genesis 8, all humanity has been corrupted. It says, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Then in Genesis 11, there's a culminating moment to all of this evil, where humanity gathers together as one in a unified rebellion against God. This is the story of the Tower of Babylon, or most commonly known the Tower of Babel. It becomes clear through narrative patterning that God is raising up new Adams or new human covenant partners to be faithful where Adam wasn't. And while some of these new Adams or new covenant partners, like Noah, Abraham, Israel, some of them have moments of great faithfulness and trust, every one of them also has a moment where just like Adam, they don't listen to God. Each of them at some point decides good and evil for themselves. For example, Noah just like Adam, was in a different garden, the garden that he planted, and he takes the fruit of his garden and becomes drunk and naked, just like Adam took the fruit of his garden and was also naked. And that's kind of what I mean about narrative patterning, new stories being told in a way similar to the earlier stories to show where the connections are. And in the example of 
Noah and these new Adams, they're told in similar ways to show us in some ways they're like Adam as a, as a covenant partner. Sometimes they're faithful. And then the false stories where they're unfaithful is also told in a similar way to Adam's unfaithfulness. So each of them at some point decides good and evil for themselves. They all fail like Adam did at some point. And we remember that all humanity has been corrupted. How can we expect any one human to ever be a faithful covenant partner and undo what Adam did like God promised would happen with the serpent crusher? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know this on a personal level as well. We're all broken and none of us can say that throughout our whole lives, we've spent every moment fully dependent on God, never seizing the authority to decide what looks good in our own eyes. We've all had moments where we did what looked good to us, even when it might not have actually been the right thing to do. Over and over again, God raised up humans who at some point each fail at listening to him. How the promise God made to raise up a descendant of the woman who will restore the Eden blessing come about? Who could possibly be the rock like Joseph, resisting temptation to the point of being pierced through as if by arrows? And that's the question that Deuteronomy 32 answers. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and just is he. So let's wrap our minds around this. In God's poem at the beginning of the Torah, Right when evil was introduced into the world, we learned that God's plan was to send a human to crush the enemy, the serpent. Then, through Genesis, capped with Jacob's poem, we learn that this rescuer will be a ruler from the tribe of Judah. He will be a rock like Joseph, who stands firm through temptation, even though he's rejected and betrayed. Now, at the end of the Torah, God is described as an archer, and we learn that the rock is God himself. Moses' second poem, which is almost immediately after the first, and there's only a short interlude in between about Moses commissioning Joshua, it also hyperfocuses on Joseph imagery. And what's cool about Moses' second poem, the last poem in the Torah, is that it's structured exactly like Jacob's poem. So there's no way we can miss the similarities that point us back to Jacob's poem to compare and contrast. And Moses' second poem is introduced as the blessing before Moses' death, just like Jacob's poem was described as the blessing before his death. Also like Jacob's poem, it's a blessing on each one of the sons of Israel who by now are long gone. So remember that all of these landmark poems are about the last days. Moses called Israel together to hear about the last days before beginning the previous poem. But unlike Jacob's poem, Moses virtually ignores Judah. He devotes only one line to Judah. But it is a line worth noting since it describes him as the one who delivers Israel from their enemies. So it tracks on to Judah's, uh, Judah's blessing from Jacob. So it's, of course, in line with the imagery we've seen of someone crushing the enemy. Now, Moses' second poem focuses on Joseph in a really interesting way. In Jacob's poem, most of the brothers were associated with animal Im imagery, but Joseph wasn't. There's actually some debate over the translation of the first line of Joseph's poem, um, it either calls Joseph a fruitful son or a fruitful vine, but there are some translations, including the JPS, that translate it as ass, as in donkey. Now, it doesn't seem like ass is a good translation of the word, and in fact, the main argument for translating it as ass is because of all the other animal imagery from the other brothers. But that's really not a strong enough argument, especially because the absence of the animal in Jacob's poem uh, about Joseph is completed with an animal image in Moses' poem about Joseph, 
which by the way is not an S. So here's what the Hebrew Bible scholar Robert Alter says. The reiterated noun in this line is so peculiar that some scholars have imagined a reference to branches, others to a wild ass. The connection between the term used here, porat, and pere, wild ass, seems strained. So the Hebrew word is talking about something other than a donkey. He goes on to say, a link between porat, the term used about Joseph, and the root porah, vine, is less of a grammatical stretch and is encouraged by Joseph, Joseph's play on that same root in naming his son Ephraim. So uh, Robert Alter doesn't think that it means vine or ass, but he thinks that ass is much more of a stretch than vine. But either way, it is certainly talking about someone being fruitful, either a fruitful son, which is what Robert Alter would say, or a fruitful vine. It's not talking about an ass. So we can be quite confident that despite some departing translations, Joseph is called fruitful. And I would say probably in reference to a vine, but for sure not an ass. So in Jacob's poem, most of the brothers were associated with animals. And now here in Moses' poem, Joseph finally gets an animal. Moses illustrated Joseph's story by connecting him to two different types of oxen. One is a shore and the other is a rim. In English, they're both rendered as ox, so you could easily miss the significance of the difference that would be evident if you're reading in the original Hebrew. Now, it can't be coincidental that the shore ox has a unique place in the Torah's commands. After God saved all the firstborns in the Exodus story, every firstborn in Israel needed to be sacrificed or redeemed. The firstborn shore is one of three exceptions. You couldn't redeem a shore ox. All firstborn shores had to be sacrificed. Not only that, but Moses doesn't just call Joseph a shore. He specified that he's a firstborn shore. A firstborn shore is one of the only three animals that will always be sacrificed in Israel. So jo uh, Moses also calls Joseph not only a shore, but also another type of ox, a rim. Now a rim uh, or an oruk was a massive animal. It was probably the biggest animal in the biblical author's worlds. So throughout the Hebrew Bible, the rem and its horns are consistently used as images of victory. Moses describes Joseph's future as a person who has a majesty like a firstborn shore, the sacrifice, and is victorious like the horns of a rem. Now also, as if to assure us that this is talking about the same Joseph-like person from Jacob's poem, so we can't mistake it for a different person, he copies and pastes a line from Jacob's blessing. He calls this person the one distinguished among his brothers. So you can see that Moses expanded a great deal on Jacob's shepherd rock from Joseph and gives us a lot to think about. Not only would Judah's descendants suffer like Joseph, but he would also suffer as a sacrifice like the firstborn shore. The one promise to Joseph would be distinguished among his brothers. He'd be a sacrifice, he'd be victorious, and he'd be none other than God himself. Now let's go look at Balaam's poem, where he ties all of this together into one person very clearly. To me, Balaam's poem shows the literary genius of the Torah. It's really cool. Both Jacob and Moses describe the one from Joseph as one distinguished among his brothers. And Balaam's poem actually gives the literary version of someone distinguished among the collective. So what I mean is Jacob and Moses both just stated flat out, this person will be distinguished among his brothers. And then Balaam's poem does that literarily. Here's what I mean. 
Balaam gives three blessings to Israel in three poems. The imagery in the first one is mostly a callback to God's promise to Abraham about how Israel as a whole is as numerous as the dust, just like God promised Abraham in Genesis, I believe, 15, that his descendants would be as numerous as the dust. And then Balaam's second poem again describes Israel as a whole, using imagery for the nation that we've seen associated with the rescuer, blessings, lions, and oxen. And in the next poem, the third poem, uses the exact same language, but we see that it's not about Israel as a whole anymore. Now it's zoomed in on Israel's king, who accomplishes what the previous poems attributed to Israel. In other words, it zooms in on the one distinguished among his brothers. All the images associated with Israel in the first two poems are able to be said about Israel because of Israel's king in Balaam's last poem, the one who's distinguished among his brothers. So here's an example. In the second poem, but as talking about Israel as a whole, it says, God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. Then in the last poem, it hones in on one specific person saying, God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. Now, this is actually a common technique in the Hebrew Bible to look out for. The author will often describe Israel as a whole accomplishing something. And then it will zoom in on the one specific representative of Israel who will be the one to do it. So, for example, you might have heard that there are heated arguments about who Isaiah 53 is about. In rabbinic Judaism, today at least, it's taught that right before Isaiah 53, Israel is called the servant of the Lord. So, in Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord must be talking about Israel, not the Messiah, like Christians say. But what this reading misses is the common pattern in the Hebrew Bible of talking about collective Israel, accomplishing something, and then zooming in on the one representative in Israel who accomplishes it on their behalf. So, Balaam's third poem uses the same phrases from both Jacob's poem and Moses' poem as if they had been copied and pasted. It goes back and forth between the images from the other two poems, using them to describe one future king of Israel. So I'm going to read through it, and as I do, try to remember which imagery is connected to which other poem. Then we'll go back, uh, we'll go back through it, and I'll try to help connect the dots. So after talking with the collective people of Israel, Balaam shifts to the one distinguished among them. What he says is, His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the rim. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him. Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. Now, do you have ears to hear this? Let, let's go back and walk through it. We have imagery of a rim, the wild ox, of crushing enemies, of archers, of lions, and of blessings. So first, he is for him like the horns of the rem. That's the victorious wild ox imagery about Joseph from Moses' poem. But it's copied and pasted here in Balaam's poem. What Moses said was, As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. Then the next line is, back to Balaam's poem, he will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. So the first half of the line reminds us of the rescuer from Genesis 3 who would crush or bruise his enemy, the serpent. That poem said, I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
And it also reminds us of Judah's descendants from both Jacob's and Moses' poems. In Jacob's poem, it said, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Okay, so the second half of this line is about crushing the enemies. Um, and it says, he will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. Joseph, not Judah, was the one who was described as the archer. Jacob uh, says about Joseph, the archers provoked him and shot at him and were hostile toward him, but his bow remained firm. Okay, back to Balaam's poem. The next line is, he couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Now, this is copied and pasted from Jacob's poem about Judah. It's almost the exact same line. Let's read it from Jacob's poem in Genesis 49. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares to stir him up? It's almost the exact same. The last line in this section of the poem is, Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. This does two things. First, it's shifting back to Joseph from Jacob's poem. Jacob blessed Joseph no less than five times in his poem, saying, May all the blessings in heaven and on earth be on Joseph's head. But it also is an exact copy and paste from God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12, where he said, And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So by bringing us back to the reason God called Abraham, it's as if the author is trying to highlight that not only are these poems, all these poems, talking about one rescuer, but he's highlighting that it's the one distinguished among the rest of Abraham's descendants. This king is the person who accomplishes Israel's purpose. He will be the one to bring blessing to the nations as Israel's foremost representative, their king. Balaam continues, saying, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab. So again, there's imagery of someone rising up from amongst Israel as if distinguished among them. And this person crushes the head, the forehead of his enemy. It's the same descendant of Judah, like Joseph, who we've been describing. But now Balaam describes him as a star coming forth from Jacob. Now we might hear someone called a star today and think of a celebrity or a really successful person, like, oh, that person's a star. But that's not how the Hebrew Bible uses the term. In the Hebrew Bible, it's spiritual beings that are consistently connected to the stars. If this was the only occurrence of such a thought in the entire Hebrew Bible, maybe it would be too much of a stretch to really grasp its meaning. But we've already seen from Moses' poem in Deuteronomy 32 that the archer rock, like Joseph, will be none other than God himself. So Balaam's poem is also bringing that imagery into his blend. So when we see Balaam's poem in light of the others, as we certainly are expected to, given their placement and their imagery, Balaam has blended all the imagery from the other poems in a clear attempt to show that all of them speak of the same person. All the landmark poems are about the serpent crusher from Genesis 3, Judah's future lion-like kingly descendant, the greatly blessed Joseph-like person distinguished among his brothers as a sacrificial ox, but also as a victorious ox, who will be Israel's archer and rock, even God himself, who is Israel's archer and rock. 
Together, these poems all point to one divine human rescuer, a Jewish king who would be an atoning sacrifice for Israel and deliver humanity from evil. And moreover, because of the placement of these poems at all the turning points in the narrative, the entire Torah is told within this framework of this person. This means the Torah is a finished work that is all about the expectation for this rescuer. Now, we could go much deeper into each of these poems, and it's worth doing it. I, I suggest doing that. But we barely scratched the surface of how much these images in the poems are communicating. What we did is just go over the framework. We noticed that these poems are structurally important to the Torah, which tells us they are significant to the author's own interpretation. Then we started to look at how all these poems use the same imagery to describe one person. But what we didn't do is a comprehensive examination of how much these poems say about him. So as you go ahead and read the poems, you'll see how much they work together to describe one divine human rescuer from the tribe of Judah who crushes evil by being crushed himself as a sacrifice. So I really hope that this sends you on a mission to learn even more and diving into these poems yourself. It really is important to be familiar with these poems because not only are they central to the proper interpretation of the Torah, but the rest of the Hebrew Bible continues to use and develop the imagery from them, expecting you to keep up. In fact, when we come across prophecies for the Messiah in the prophets and the writings, they aren't sending a new message, but they're actually picking up the message of the Torah and explaining it to us. For example, look at the most famous messianic prophecy, which is probably Isaiah 53, I think. Isaiah 53 fits inside a larger passage that describes the messianic age as a new exodus with a new Moses. Isaiah got that idea from Numbers 23 and 24, where in Numbers 23, God describes Israel being taken out of Egypt in the Exodus, and then in Numbers 24, he uses the exact same language to describe the one king of Israel who will rescue Israel. So if you want to look into this some more and get better at understanding the rest of the Hebrew Bible, take some time meditating on the poem in 1 Samuel 2, and notice how it builds off of the Torah's poetry in order to launch you into the story of King David. But for now... Let's meditate on what we learned from Moses and Balaam's poems. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Then he took up his discourse and said, The declaration of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the declaration of the man whose eye is opened, the declaration of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. How pleasant are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from his buckets, and his seed will be by many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox, he will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones and smash them with his arrows. He crouches, he lies down like a lion and like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Blessed is everyone who blesses you and cursed is everyone who curses you. Numbers 24, 2 through 9. From the very first pages of scripture, as soon as evil was introduced into the world, God began to reveal his rescue plan. The Torah tells the story of God working through humanity to restore all of creation. 
and the poems guide us through the story, teaching us that God's plan from the very beginning was to be humanity's deliverer. God himself decided to restore humanity by taking on human flesh, being a descendant of the woman to crush the serpent, and being crushed in the process. God himself decided to be a faithful human in order to bring life to all of creation. Let's take some time to meditate and reflect on God's word. I'm gonna ask you three questions. Just go ahead and take the time you need to think about them, and if you need to pause to have more time, go ahead. So the first question, from the beginning of time, God knew the cost of restoring humanity, and he willingly did. What comes to mind as you think about that? Next, what has God personally rescued you from? And last question, what is one area in your life or in your community that is still experiencing brokenness? Take a second to call on God's great compassion and ask him for restoration. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Torah Guide Podcast. If you want to meditate on this lesson some more, check out the video and reading plan that go along with it at thetorahguide.com. The Torah Guide is a totally crowdfunded nonprofit that makes all sorts of resources to help you read the Hebrew Bible and discover Jesus, including this podcast, animated videos, devotionals, reading plans, and more. And we're able to do all of it because of generous people like you. If you want to be a part of helping people discover how the Hebrew Bible points to Jesus, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly supporter at thetorahguide.com give. Thanks for being a part of this.